Welcome to Timeless Truth with Pastor Jim Thomas, a resource of the Village Chapel in Nashville, Tennessee. This week, we continue our study of the Gospel of Mark. To find studies of other books of the Bible from our archive, you can search our sermon library at thevillagechapel.com resources. We pray these studies will help you to think biblically in all categories of life so that we all might be formed more into the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's Pastor Jim. Good day, folks. So glad you've joined me for our continuing study of Mark's gospel. We've just come through the section where Jesus sent his 12 disciples out on mission. They were sent to preach the gospel. They were sent to heal the sick. They were sent to set people free from all the dark forces and demonic forces that were besetting them and oppressing them and possessing them. So while that's going on, we pick up in verse 14 of chapter 6 in Mark's gospel. If you've got your Bible, I'd love for you to open it up and read with me, read along with me. If not, just listen carefully, and I'll try to describe this as best I can along the way. King Herod heard of it, heard of what? Heard about these guys being out on mission, heard about the crowds flocking to Jesus, uh, seeking to be healed, heard about these guys going from village to village um, and collecting big crowds and people just, again, desperate souls, desperate bodies, desperate minds. And as they preach the gospel and it makes so much sense to them, um, especially speaks to their own desperation. And so Herod Antipas, who is the king of that particular region, he heard of this for Jesus' name had become well-known, and the people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And therefore, these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others were saying, he meaning Jesus, is Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, he has risen. And so you can imagine this guy, Herod Antipas, who's a tetrarch, he's a uh, a, a king of, of a portion of this region over there. And he had beheaded John the Baptist. We'll read about that in just a minute. But he's thinking to himself, as people are saying, speculating, it's Elijah, it's John the Baptist, whatever, it's a prophet of old. He's thinking to himself, knowing full well that when he beheaded John the Baptist, uh, he was killing, he was putting to death a holy man, a righteous man, a prophet of God. And you can tell he's got a little bit of a guilty conscience here because he's thinking that Jesus is John the Baptist reincarnated and bringing back all this miraculous power. It's interesting, though, because as we as we pointed out before, John the Baptist didn't actually work any miracles. He didn't perform any miracles. He did come preaching repentance and 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 turning in faith to believe in God's Messiah had come in, G in the personal work of Jesus. And John the Baptist made it clear and pointed out Jesus. But uh, it's interesting that, that some of this could have been sorted out and, 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 and figured out if he only had some good information. But here he's just having nightmares. He thinks, you know, pro probably in the middle of the night he, after he had killed John the Baptist, you know, he's He's, he's seeing some kind of motion by a window or something in the middle of the night, and he thinks it's John the Baptist come back to haunt him. And, um, and so he's having these nightmares. Well, Herod himself, we're told the backstory now, verse 17, Herod himself had sent and had John the Baptist arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, the wife of Herod Antipas's brother Philip, 
because he, Herod Antipas, had married her. Now, if you think you have a dysfunctional family at all, and you know some of us have varying levels of dysfunction in our family, I want you to, <clears throat> at some point, go on the internet and download the Herodian dynasty family tree and just look at the chaos that made up the Herodian family tree. I mean, this is Herod Antipas, who's not Herod the Great. When Jesus is born, it's Herod the Great who ruled who ruled in that area. He was, he was called the king from 37 to 4 BC. Jesus likely born somewhere between 4 and 6 BC. Our Western calendar is off just a little bit. Um, as it was put together, I think, somewhere in the 5th or 6th century by a guy named uh, Dionysius Exiguus, and he just didn't have the same information we have about when Herod the Great was king. But here, uh, Herod Antipas, who is uh, one of uh, the tetrarchs, one of the, one of the guys who has inherited part of Herod the Great's kingdom after Herod the Great is gone, um, he has stolen, what's happening is he has actually taken his brother Philip's wife away from him. And Philip had a different region uh, that he was in charge of. But somehow or another, Herod Antipas wooed her, um, her name was Herodias, wooed her over to uh, his uh, favor and uh, took her as his wife. So Herodias father was Aristobulus. This is so fascinating, who was also one of the sons of Herod the Great. Um, uh, Herodias, this wife of Herod Antipas, um, <laughs> married her uncle husband, then Philip, okay? And then Herodias' second uncle husband and brother-in-law, Antipas, is the one she left Philip for to go marry her uncle husband and brother-in-law, Antipas. Like I said, this is the ultimate dysfunctional family. Um, all of the power, all of the privilege, all of the, you know, um, uh, I mean, set up in every way, you know, to, to have a great life, a flourishing life. And again, if you, if you look up famous dysfunctional families, in, if, if there were such a dictionary, dictionary I'm pretty sure that uh, the Herodian family tree would have to be right there. The picture of it would have to be right there. I mean, it's marked by by power and privilege, of course, but, but also by paranoia, uh, conspiracies, uh, unfaithfulness, as we just see. Um, lots of abuse, uh, lots and lots of violence. Uh, Herod the Great especially, uh, killing several of his wives, uh, some of his children as well. He's always concerned that they were coming after his throne. And so what we have here is a situation that is being recalled by uh, Mark as he's telling the gospel, as, as he's talking about what's going on in the gospel here, that King Herod Antipas heard about Jesus and his disciples going around the countryside doing this. And his imagination is running wild. People are talking, trying to figure out who Jesus is. Some think he's John the Baptist come back. Some think he's Elijah the prophet come back from the dead. Others just think he's uh, just one of the prophets of old. But Herod has immediately tied it. Herod Antipas has immediately tied it to the fact that he killed John the Baptist and that this must be John the Baptist come back at him. So then Mark goes on to tell us what happened and how it was that Herod Antipas came to kill John the Baptist. John had been saying, verse 18, John had been saying 
uh, to Herod Antipas, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So John the Baptist is a straight shooter. Last time I checked, it's never safe to publicly rebuke and conf- confront an Eastern despot who has all unchecked, unbridled authority. But John the Baptist does it, says it to his face. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Got to appreciate John the Baptist's courage as a prophet. Well, Herodias, that's the wife he stole from his brother Philip. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but could not do so because Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. And when he heard him, when that is, when Herod Antipas heard John the Baptist preach. He was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. And some Bible commentators even think that um, when John the Baptist was thrown in prison, Herod Antipas would sometimes visit him in his cell and listen to him and talk to him, that sort of thing. Well, at a strategic day, verse 21 says, uh, Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And that's the area on the northern third of Israel where Herod Antipas was indeed in charge. Well, when the daughter of Herodias herself, and that's Salome, her name is, and she's evidently the uh, product of uh, Herodias's other marriage because she's listed here as the daughter of Herodias came in and she danced at this banquet and it pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And so here he is at this banquet. He's He's likely drunken, um, and here's the alcohol speaking. He's just making all kinds of foolish, rash, you know, and, and he's, he's, he's looking with lust upon um, this stepdaughter of his own, uh, Herodias's daughter, Salome, and he is, is trying to curry favor with her in a way. And she went out and said to her mother, verse 24, what shall I ask for? And mom says, the head of John the Baptist. Now that's, while, you know, with Herod Antipas saying, I'll give you whatever you want. You know, you've pleased me. You, you're dancing so beautifully. You're so beautiful and you're dancing so beautifully and all that sort of thing. That's the alcohol speaking here. Uh, when Herodias says, "Bring, ask for the head of John the Baptist, that is scorn and indignation speaking. And these are people, you have to understand, these are people that have so much, they have everything. Um, And so, you know, the possibility of of Salome saying, give me half that kingdom you promised there, you said that in front of everyone, she could have done that, but she already had everything. So um, what she asks for is what her scorned mother, uh, who's hateful and angry about John the Baptist publicly scolding uh, Herod Antipas and be, you know, in, in so doing, so besmirching her name as well. And so she wants the head of John the Baptist on the plate. Immediately, she came in uh, before the in haste before the king, this is Salome, and asked saying, I want you to give me right away the head of John the Baptist on the platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. 
And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. I mean, just think about just just having to see that, having to ask for that, having to see that, having to go through that experience as a, as a young girl um, and, and living in a day and time when people are so flippant about human life um, and so filled with hatred and rage and anger that they would do that. Um, and so this happened immediately. And verse 29, or verse 28, they brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. I mean, just, just that act alone in, in the presence of everyone. I mean, did she recoil? Was she, was she so grossed out? Was she, did she all of a sudden see the gravity of what she had asked for that someone lost their life? Um, she probably didn't know who John the Baptist was herself, but, um, the girl gave it to her mother. So she literally, you take it, mom. You know, this is what you want. You asked for this. Here it is. Well, verse 29 shifts. And when his disciples heard about this, John the Baptist's disciples, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. And so that's where I'll stop for today. And you're thinking to yourself, man, timeless truth. I'm so glad I join you for this daily devotional, Pastor Jim. What in the world is it you want to you wanna talk about in a passage like this? Well, I think it's important for us when we're reading through the Bible uh, to not just jump over the parts of it that make us uncomfortable, that stretch us a little bit. Um, they're there for a reason. Um, I, I think that we need to see the, the kinds of temptations the kinds of things that can twist our view of reality. Because as some of you will acknowledge, in our own day and time, there are the same kind of heinous things going on. And it's not just all way overseas, way over there. There's some of that happening right here. It's happened in Nashville. It's, it's happened elsewhere in our, in our country and in our culture. And it's a product of something. What is it a product of? You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, some of you will have heard of him. He uh, wrote a book called God is in the Manger, Reflections on Advent and Christmas. And I, I know it's not Advent or Christmas as I'm reading this, but I'm actually going to read from another, uh, another writing by another author uh, on Advent as well, because they're both talking about the great and the powerful uh, in this world. Uh, let, let me read the Bonhoeffer quote first. The great and powerful of this world, there are only two places in which their courage fails them, of which they are afraid deep down in their souls, from which they shy away. These are the manger and the cross of Jesus Christ. No powerful person dares to approach the manger. And this even includes King Herod. Now he's talking there about King Herod the Great, who was around when Jesus was born in a manger. So he doesn't come himself. He sends his soldiers, his minions, to go and do the evil deed uh, that ended up in the death of all of those baby children um, in, in, uh, in Bethlehem. So, for this is where thrones shake, Bonhoeffer says. The mighty fall, the prominent perish, because God is with the lowly. Here, the rich come to nothing, because God is with the poor and the hungry. But the rich and satisfied, he sends away empty. Before Mary the maid, before the manger of Christ, before God in lowliness, the powerful come to naught. 
They have no right, no hope. They are judged. And Bonhoeffer, pretty strong there, sounding a little bit like John the Baptist himself, isn't he? Well, uh, a more contemporary author, Fleming Rutledge, um, uh, uh, a theologian who I think she's just brilliant. She has a book on Advent subtitled The Once and Future Coming of Jesus Christ, because most of you will know Advent, we, we look back on his first arrival and we we reflect on what was accomplished in that. We also look forward to his promised second return and all that that holds for us in terms of the promise and the hope and the renewal of all things. And and so while we look back and we say, oh my goodness, you know, the world lie in darkness. The world is so messed up, so uh, so filled with anger and rage and all this sort of thing that God had to come Himself and do something about it. And what did He do? He came in lowliness in a manger and he died to secure my salvation and yours so that we might have life. He died so we could live when he died on the cross and when he burst forth from the spiced tomb on the resurrection day. Well, anyway, Fleming Rutledge in her book called Advent, she says, if the kingdom of heaven is at hand, as John the Baptist said, then all our other kingdoms are called radically into question, including my own private kingdom and yours. <laughs> so Fleming, she nails us, right? And she's also, as she looks back to John the Baptist and his preaching, she's recalling something we just read about. Herod Antipas's kingdom, Herodias's kingdom, you know, called into question because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, you know? And so too for us as well. How does that strike you? I think that's good for us to hear that, to be stirred, to be awakened by that. Because what we're really longing for is not my kingdom come, but thy kingdom come. We pray it all the time in the Lord's Prayer, don't we? Yeah, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Do you know that sometimes, and, and I don't know if it's a quote Freudian end quote, slip or not. But sometimes I mistakenly say, hallowed be my name, my kingdom come. I say my instead of I. And I don't know if that's betraying something about me or not. And probably it is. But I know I need to push reset. And I'm so glad we pray that prayer every single Sunday at the Village Chapel. My mother um, says it every single morning before her feet hit the ground, the Lord's Prayer and Psalm 23, a great spiritual practice for her. R.C. Sproul once said, not until we take God seriously will we ever take sin seriously. And that is indeed what was going on with Herod Antipas, with Herodias, uh, with so many since then, and even with myself sometimes. If we take God in his holiness seriously, we will be forced to take our sins seriously because we'll start to ask the question, well, how in the world can someone like me, a sinner like me, how can I be reconciled to God? And of course, we who are believers, we who trust in Christ as our Savior, we who believe the gospel, we know that we, we, we've been you know, we've received this wonderful message handed down to us that God has done everything necessary for us to receive this gift, this free gift of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. So it's a it's a gift of grace. That is, it's to the guilty and undeserving. That's me. Um, it's a gift of grace, and it's offered for free 
by, you receive it by faith in Jesus Christ. And so this is such great news. And as we study through Mark's gospel, I'll remind you over and over again, he's constantly asking two questions. Who is Jesus and how should you respond to Jesus? Herod Antipas completely wanted to do away with John the Baptist. And uh, eventually you'll see as we get through Mark's gospel, he wants to do away with Jesus, wants to do away with anybody who wants to take away his power. He's all about, Herod Antipas, all about his kingdom. Herodias, all about her kingdom come, her will be done. And to the point of even wanting to kill John the Baptist to have his head taken. If we don't take our sins seriously, and those two did not, and sometimes I do not, and you as well, if we don't take our sin seriously, um, we won't understand the freedom on offer for us in God's grace. Paul Tripp writes a lot about God's grace, and I'll close out with this quote. He says, grace takes sin seriously, or there would be no need for grace. So real faith in God's grace never results in not caring about sin. What he really means, and maybe I'll just reword it a little bit, real faith in Jesus, who represents God's gift of grace to us, um, never results in us not caring about sin. No, we take it seriously. As a matter of fact, we take it so seriously, and we're so amazed by the grace that's put on offer to us in the person and work of Jesus. We are humbled. We fall to our knees. We lift up the empty hands of faith and receive it as a gift. And then we begin to walk in the freedom of God's grace, realizing that all my sin, all of your sin has been paid for past, present, and future in the finished work of Christ. 2,000 years ago, 2023, however many years ago it was exactly, I don't know, but roughly 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross. When, when was my salvation secured? It wasn't when I prayed a prayer or walked an aisle. No, my salvation was secured when Jesus died on the cross. And so I point back to something that really happened in space-time history, and I point back to something that was settled. It's once and done. Christ paid it all. And I put my faith and hope in Jesus then and receive as a gift of grace uh, this salvation, that this life that he's put on offer, this forgiveness, this freedom that he's put on offer for you and for me. I hope you'll walk in that today. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for John the Baptist and the, 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 the mission you gave him to come and point the way to Jesus, point, point out Jesus, to acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah, the long hoped for, the long promised, the long waited for Messiah. Help us as we look back in time to that day when John the Baptist walked the earth, when Jesus was walking the earth, when his disciples were walking the earth and following Jesus. Lord, may we also follow Jesus. May we believe, trust, and hope so much so that we walk in real freedom today because of the finished work of Christ on the cross and in his glorious resurrection. And it's in his name that we pray, amen and amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to today's study. Take a moment to leave a review and share this episode with friends and family. You can stay connected by signing up for our newsletter or follow us on social media. 
At the Village Chapel, we believe God's Word is unique in its source, timeless in its truth, broad in its reach, and transforming in its power. For more resources or to support our ministry, visit our website, thevillagechapel.com.